Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois, joined by Sean Degenhart. Oh, hi. Very nice. And John Redling I can't match that. Hi, Mickey. Hi, Sean. Hi, John. I got everybody. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, that's that's pretty good. John? Gorsh. Hi. <laughs> Whatever platform you're following us on, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please leave us a review so more people find the show. You can share it on social media and tag us. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion. Email us at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. In honor of Father's Day, we're going to go around the room and give our best Disney dad joke. Oh, hold up, time out. Wait, best, you, you, best. Said, you didn't say anything about <laughs> no best. No one told me about best. I had something. Or, I, I know, I don't see this working. Or the one we found the fastest. Let's start with John, because I have a feeling Sean's is going to be just Better than spectacular. Mine? Uh, uh, you might be disappointed. You're up, John. Well, Rick Astley will let you borrow any movie from his Disney collection except Up, because he's never going to give you Yes, up. yes, oh. that's good. That's right. I love it. No, you don't, but that's all right. <laughs> Which Disney character can count the highest? Buzz Lightyear. He, to infinity and he beyond. He can count to infinity and beyond. Thank you for spoiling. Why do, oh, oh, yeah. That was, <laughs> ooh, we're getting deep here, aren't we? Why do Texas baseball fans love Chip and Dale? Wait, you're doing a sports joke? Yeah. <laughs> Why do Why Texas, do baseball, Texas fans? baseball fans in, what? love Chip and love Dale? Love Chip and Dale. Why? They've been known to rescue rangers. Yes. Uh, Very good. <laughs> Well, those are wonderful. Send us your <laughs> jokes. Hopefully they're better. You can email us at podcast at the Hyperion We fulfill our assignment. <laughs> Didn't know we were being great. Oh, aren't we always, though? And that's what we like to call our Disney views. Now on with the show. We are excited to have with us a guy I've actually known for, I first met the tw about 25 years ago uh, when I was an undergrad at ISU, and he was running the Fine Arts Computer Lab there at Illinois State. James Bone is the Associate Professor of Music at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts, and has written a book called Music in Disney's Animated Features. Welcome, Jim, to the Hyperion Hub. Thank you for having me. This book, I think I got the book before I knew you had written it, and then as I'm reading it, I thought, wait a minute, I know this guy. And <laughs> it is a fantastic book. Um, the book covers in-depth analysis of music in, like it says, in Disney's animated features, starting from Steamboat Willie on up through the Jungle Book. And it is a deep dive of deep dives for music nerds and Disney fans like me. Um, he gets real deep in the weeds on analyzing harmony and looking at leitmotifs used in the films and all those kind of things. So let's backtrack a little bit. Tell us about your first introduction to Disney. I actually apparently was at Disney World before it opened. My father's parents retired to a town called Arcadia, Florida, about three hours south of Orlando. And so we would go down for a week every year. And I am about a year and three months older than Disney World. <laughs> and so um, the year before it opened... 
my uh, parents stopped at the at the um, preview center to get reservations for the following year. And for my first 18 years or so, with maybe two years exceptions, we'd go uh, kind of twice a year where we would stop on the way down to Arcadia and then stop on the way back as well. Um, so, and I think I saw the 1973 re-release of Cinderella. Cinderella is the first film I remember seeing. And when I look at what years it was re-released, I think it would have had to have been 1973. So that tells you how, well, I mean, I already told you how old I am by relating it to Disney World. So Cinderella, and did that score and the songs just captivate you from that age? Well, I mean, I was very young. All I really remember about Cinderella, I thought the mice were the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And that's pretty much all I really remember from the film is just thinking Gus Gus was hilarious Mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, You know, but we, as a family, we... uh, we go to see mostly the Christmas releases. Um, the the big one for our family was Pete's Dragon that hit at a really great time. Um, and then, you know, when Disney Channel first came out, we were one of the first families I know I knew of that got the Disney Channel. That was when it was a paid subscription uh, service. And if any of you guys were um, around during the first years of the Disney Channel, they had no programming. So they had to uh, reshow films from the 50s and 60s, uh, kind of the B films. They didn't tend to show the, their greatest films that often, but I knew all the True Life Adventure films. I knew all the Haley Mills films, kind of inside out, backwards. Um, you know, my family listened to musicals a lot. My parents enjoyed musicals. So it was really kind of more the experience of listening to musicals as a family that really kind of um, was some of my early interests in music. And, of course, that that meshes really well with Disney music as well. So let's take that back a step. As a musician, when did I – and mean, you said, you know, the films and everything really caught your – ears as far as an interest in music so when did your interest turn to hey i want to learn how to do this well i was in one of those families where everyone had to take music lessons i took piano lessons from about the second grade onward um at some point between then and when i graduated high school i'd taken vocal lessons i'd taken cello lessons i'd taken trombone lessons um you know the whole gambit and um, it was really in junior high, the, the last time I considered not being a musician, uh, I had thought maybe I'd go into architecture, but even by the end of junior high, I kind of knew like, no, I'm going to do music. And then what did you study in college? What was your major instrument? Uh, actually, I was a declared composition major. Okay. I'm, I'm one of these people who loves musical instruments, and so I play a lot of them which also means I don't play any of them well, which is a good recipe for composition, not so great for performance. Right. So you're going through your graduate, undergrad, and then grad school. When did this book come about? When did the concept start to form in your head that you wanted to do this deep dive? 
I don't know if you have any friends who work in academia, but at the time, I was an adjunct uh, professor, a part-time professor working at three or four different schools. And, um, you know, adjunct professors live and die on enrollment. And this was right after, actually, it was right after the stock market crash of 2008. You know, um, lots of classes were getting cut due to low enrollment and so forth. And I just was like, you know what? I want to have a course that I don't have to worry about enrollment. That I know it's always going to fill. And the school, one of the schools I was teaching at had a uh, thing called first year seminars where as long as the course was writing intensive, and your chair would sign off on it, they would let you teach whatever course you wanted. And so I'm like, hey, you know, I'm going to teach a course about Disney music. That will always fill. And as soon as I came up with that idea, probably half a second later, I was like, oh, wait, I could also write a textbook for it. And so, um, you know, and the rest is kind of history. So the first, the rough draft of this book was a textbook for a course I was teaching. And it always filled up, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was one of the first first year seminars to fill up on a regular basis. It was in high demand. So I've got a project that I'm currently working with Disney on and have um, talked to some of the same people you did, Jonathan Healy and um, Jackie Janakwa. They've all been great help mm -hmm. in my research. What was it like? getting access to those scores and just digging through and doing that research and finding documents and unused songs and cue sheets and all that, all those kind of things. Well, to be honest, I didn't think it would happen. Um, you know, when I set out to write this book, I kind of thought like the plan was going to be, I was going to write a book where I wouldn't need to get any copyright clearance because I didn't think I was going to get permission to write it. Um, and, but, you know, a little bit of persistence pays off. So, uh, I kind of never even assumed that I would, um, have luck with the archives. I found out early on that, um, they typically won't let people do research in the archives. Typically what happens is you have to submit questions to the archives through Disney's legal department. The legal department clears the question, it goes to the archives, the archives answers the question, it goes back to the legal department, they release the answer. And so I, whenever I had a chance, I would ask a question that way. And whenever they sent me a response, I would immediately ask them more questions. So I just kept mm -hmm. shoving questions their way. And they also had a policy that they wouldn't even consider uh, giving you access to material if you, um, unless you had a book deal in hand. Uh, fortunately, at a fairly early in the process, I had a book deal in hand. And um, then the thing after that is I still didn't think I was ever going to get access to the archives, but... There are all these research centers across the country that have like one score here and one score there. Um, like the Paul Smith's papers are held at one college. Um, Carl Stallings are at another college. Buddy Baker's are at another college. And some of these some of these college archives will just let you get access to the material. Others want a letter from Disney giving approval. 
And so I kind of pursued that. I'm like, I, I said, like, can I get a letter from you guys saying it's all right for me to view these materials? And I finally got letters for those uh, items. And then, like, maybe a month later, I got the letter in the mail saying, like, oh, by the way, you can do research at the archives. Um, and, you know, that was an intimidating process, too, because, like, when they send you the formal permission, there's all these things like we charge this amount of money per hour for this and this amount of money for that. So, you know, I wasn't going to turn down an opportunity to go to the archives, um, but I had to kind of figure out, like, this is how much I can afford in terms of numbers of hours. And so I had to be really kind of selective about these are the things I want to see. This is a prioritized list. And, you know, you contact them more than a month ahead of time so they can get all the stuff and set it aside. And then you go into the room and you read through it as quickly as you can. Like, really, I, I picked things that I could really skim through. You know, like anything that was going to need intensive study, I didn't really even ask for it because I just didn't have the time to do it. But through the stuff I got it from other universities, it really filled in the gaps. And, you know, sometimes at the Disney archives, you're looking at originals. Sometimes you're looking at photocopies. But, you know, a lot of times when you're looking at originals, even when you're looking at photocopies, there is this sort of thing of like, I can't really believe that I'm doing this. <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. When I was working on my project, um, just seeing those scores and seeing, you know, Ed Plum's initials at the end on the, you know, the last page of a queue, I'm like, he actually wrote this page. I mean, it's just a neat way to touch history. And, yeah. and persistence and patience is what I've learned in dealing. You know, they're more than willing to help, but it's a big machine to move and they've got a lot going on. So that was, yeah, it's been a great experience for me. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with the company is that people, there's this characterization that the Disney company is somehow unfriendly officially. And that's not at all true. I mean, the legal department has their mission where they don't, they want to protect the company's intellectual property and, and so on and so forth. So they're doing a real job. But, you know, there's two things with the company. It's not a single company. It's a bunch of little fiefdoms that are under the umbrella of a major corporation. And so often one hand doesn't know what the other hand's doing. And when you get down to the employee level, most of the employees I found seem to be true believers to me. I haven't found a Disney employee working at that level who isn't really proud of what they do and proud of the company and what they do. And as long as you're polite and, and considerate and, you know, think of what, what work you're creating for other people, I found that people want to help you. You know, the individuals involved want to help you. Were there any huge surprises as you're doing research? Um, I mean, you kind of know what you were looking for. You knew what you wanted to accomplish. Was there anything that you discovered that you were like, I had no idea? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, the, um, the Disney archives will call it the score to Steamboat Willie. It's not a score at all. It's really what's called a dope sheet or a... Um, 
Um, there's there's another name for it, but for whatever reason, I'm, I'm uh, dope sheet is the one that's sticking in my head. Basically, what it is, um, all the animated features up through uh, up until the 1950s were planned out to a musical beat, so that even before any animation happened, they knew what the tempo was going to be for every section, so that you know when Mickey Mouse takes a step the animator knows how many drawings they need to draw. Um, so, you know, it's all planned out to a musical beat. And they figured that out as early as Steamboat Willie. You know, they kind of sketched out, this is the tempo, this is where Turkey in the Straw is going to happen. And then you can see little notations of what's going to happen visually on the screen. But if you look at it from a music musician's perspective, it's kind of it looks like a grade schooler wrote it, you know, like the eighth notes are backwards and there's really almost nothing intelligible going on except for a tempo map. And that's pretty much it. And, you know, it seems as if that was given to Burt Lewis to, to work into something. Uh, but it was probably Wilfred Jackson that um, did the dope sheet on that. The other thing I was really surprised about those of you who really know your Disney history know that Carl Stalling was um, hired away. He, Carl Stalling was the first musical director at the Disney studios, but he was hired away from the Disney series in about 1930. Uh, that was when Ubiwerks left Disney as well. There's this concerted effort to try and destroy Disney by hiring, hiring away the best animator uh, I'll buy works and to hire away the music director, uh, Carl Stalling, um, you know, and Carl Stalling only agreed to go because he thought like without I works, the company was in, in real danger and he was close friends with UB as well. So they, they kind of left together. But even after that happened, Carl Stalling was still doing arrangements for Disney. You know, like I, you know, it's not entirely clear to me whether those arrangements were blessed by Walt Disney or whether Burt Lewis was just giving Carl Stallings assi assignments on the sly, say, like, look, we need this done, and Carl would do it, he'd get paid, and, and so forth. But he was he was uh, arranging, uh, making arrangements for uh, animated shorts in 31 and 32 and stuff like that. So that was something I was pretty surprised to see favorite film from the period from the book that you enjoyed most researching um well in terms of researching it would be cinderella because i had access to the full score um but in terms of favorite film which is a different question um snow white and the seven dwarfs it's the first one the animation is fantastic it's wall-to-wall -wall music there's probably not even five seconds in the film that's not scored um, it's, it's really an amazing achievement, animation, story, uh, music-wise. I was very excited to see when they released the Master Score, when they published that back in 2016 or 2017, mm -hmm. around that time. I'm assuming you have your copy of that. Yes, I, I, I've got the Master Score. And for, for those, again, who, who don't kind of know the business, they again, they're kind of mislabeling it. It's not really a master score again it's a dope sheet where you have four musical staves two of them are actual music 
Uh, and sometimes, you know, like Lee Harleen would just be kind of sketching in, well, this melody goes here and kind of sketching an idea of the accompaniment, but it's not fully worked out. But they do at least have worked out the number of measures and the tempo and so forth. And then the upper two staves, one is like action and the other one is like sound effects. And they're kind of like specified what musical beat these things occur on. And that's how they managed to really organize this mammoth thing. And again, it was completely done before any animation really began, begun work on it. How important was music to Walt? I mean, we, we all know Disney music, and we know what we love about it, but Walt was a filmmaker. I don't know if many films in the early 1930s and 40s and all the way up through the 60s had so much important scores attached to them like Disney's had. I mean, there were, there were a bunch of musicals and there were films that used music, but not like Disney. Well, I think the whole thing comes down to money. Uh, and in when Walt paid for the scoring session for Steamboat Willie, he had to hire sound effects engineers. Uh, and I think he had to hire five of them. And remember, he like uh, sold his car in order to uh, do this. This was really... Uh, um, uh, a Hail Mary pass. That's the only time I'm going to make a sports metaphor. So, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, he had to hire these sound effects people and he realized if the sound effects get worked into the music, then I don't have to hire sound effects people. And so a uh, memo went out from Walt while he was in New York city saying, you know, all scores should have as much of the sound effects, musical scores should have as much of the sound effects worked into the musical score as possible. And so that's what Carl Stallings started to do. Uh, and this became one of the iconic elements. You know, Carl Stalling really invented the music for animated shorts. Uh, and the things that Carl Stalling was, was doing kind of really built what is sort of the default approach to scoring animated shorts. And um, that approach to putting the sound effects into the score was so identified with Disney, it became known as Mickey Mousing. Um, you know, that term was invented, I think, by uh, Samuel Gold Goldman, who um, he was mad at, um, I think it was Max Steiner for... Uh, because Max Steiner liked to do that. And, you know, he, he, he kind of cursed him out and said, damn it, stop that Mickey Mousing stuff uh, sort of thing. Um, but, you know, from that, the, er, the Silly Symphonies, as we know, had a very strong emphasis on music. Again, that was Carl Stallings' contribution. But another reason why the Silly Symphonies were really important in terms of music is that the technology to synchronize dialogue with animation was difficult. And so if you if you're if everybody's singing, all you have to do is flap their mouths to the musical beat and it looks it works great. So there was this other reason why why if you pay attention to all the silly symphonies, 
there's several years before they have any really spoken dialogue. It's all sung dialogue because it was easier to do. And so it gives it this kind of operatic element to it. Uh, and by the time they did Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, they were so used to kind of making these animated musicals numbers that they just kind of went forward with it. Now, once, you know, you started to have hit songs like uh, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf and some of these other numbers, then Walt Disney also kind of knew that like, oh, wait, there's this other advantage. We can sell sheet music and, you know, having the songs played on the radio is free advertising for the movies and so on and so forth. Um, you know, he, he knew a good deal when he saw it and he totally embraced music. I, I would say he totally embraced music after who's afraid of the big bad wolf, because that really proved that it was this whole other revenue stream and this whole other means of, of publicity that uh, they could they could take advantage of. That completes the first part of our conversation with James Bone, the author of Music in Disney's Animated Features, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to the Jungle Book. The book is available on Amazon.com and wherever you purchase your books. The foreword is by author Jeff Curdy. Next week, Jim tells more stories about the process of researching the book and working directly with the Disney company. Until then, please follow us on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion. Email us at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Please, if you have a Disney story you'd like to share, email us at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. We'd love to have you on the show. Wherever you're listening to us, please rate and review so more people find the show. Until next week, have a great one, everybody. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub. Thank you.